0: Hello, and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies, and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, and this week we're going to have a very meta discussion. We're not talking about the world, but we're talking about think tanks, or rather, how think tanks affect the world and how the changing world affects think tanks. And to help us, Make sense of these issues. We have a very expert panel. First up is Dr. James McGann, who is a an FPRI senior fellow and director of the think tanks and foreign policy program at the University of Pennsylvania, and is also uh, the author of *The Fifth Estate*, which is, I think, a seminal book on think tanks, public policy, and governance, and and the creator of. Uh, The leading, in fact, the only uh, annual uh, think tank index which uh, looks at over 5,000 think tanks around the world and tells people which ones are are doing well and uh, not doing so well. Also joining me, we have uh, back to the podcast, uh, Jeremy Shapiro, who is research director ECFR but has uh, a life uh, in think tanks and governments that precedes that, has worked at the Brookings Institution and RAND in the United States. And the final participant is Kadri Leek, also a senior policy fellow at ECFR but uh, has also had a a life before ECFR, including running the top think tank in Estonia, the ICDS. You can tell us what those initials stand for, but it's uh, not just a a big think tank, but also uh, organised one of the the biggest conferences um, uh, on the European foreign policy scene, the the Let It Mary conference. So, Jim, um, you're going around the world promoting your book on the fifth estate, but also pouring cold water on a lot of the aspirations of, of think tanks at the moment. What do you think the biggest threats are to think tanks in 2017?
1: Well, obviously, I think um, that uh, the uh, technology and the incessant um, appearance of disruptive technologies that directly affect uh, those who are involved in um, analysis and uh, purveying information, uh, the nature of those technologies affects both how the content is shaped and, more importantly, uh, delivered. And it is in an environment that is um, very uh, competitive, both from a technological standpoint, but also in terms of uh, there are many um, institutions' voices that are competing for the same space and attention. Um, And those that I would contend have... um, been innovative and have adapted their institutions to respond to this changing political economy of think tanks are those that will um, survive and and flourish in the future.
0: So, we were talking earlier, and you kind of talked about some of the scary trends that you see happening. One is like the, the, this idea of the politics of disruption coming together with the technology of disruption, the sheer speed with which things are happening, which means that most of the PDFs that think tanks produce uh, re- remain unread in distant uh, corners of websites, the changes in the media environment. Of all of those different things, what do you think is the, the biggest challenge?
1: Well, I think, I mean, I think the um, oddly, um, and historically, um, think tanks have been slow to introduce uh, the techno- cutting-edge technological advances into their organizations. So I think that presents um, the largest challenge. But there are um, individuals in Europe, politicians, movements, that are, are able to effectively bring together and utilize these disruptive and master these disruptive technologies um, to um, transform, disrupt politics. And Donald Trump is an example of that. Uh, Many of the populist movements or parties in Europe are a part of that, but it's also a global phenomenon. Um, And I think in many respects, uh, governments, uh, movements have gotten out ahead of um, civil society in the traditional sense and, That is I think for me a very uh, troubling trend Um, and part of what I hope in terms of the message I'm sending is that uh, in order to meet that challenge um, and to uh, inject positive and rational thinking into um, politics and public policy that think tanks need to understand these trends and internalize them.
0: So Jeremy how does that sound to you based on, on your experience in the US? think tank sector and here in Europe you know, you know of course it makes a lot of sense I, I think it, it
2: it's obviously true that in order to survive in a fast-moving world think tanks like any other organization need to adapt need to be innovative need to be flexible uh, I think that the question for think tanks though is um if you do all of that adaptation if you create all of that flexibility are you still a think tank um it seems to me that think tanks are programmed. Are, are they are there? They are by necessity, by definition, slower than other organizations, uh, because they're supposed to be reflective. That's what the thinking is. Um, they are supposed to nurture expertise. They are supposed to be. Uh, they are supposed to be slow in their thinking. They are supposed to be long term in their thinking, and. Uh, you know, they were set up with a specific business model to create a degree of independence, both from the political sphere, even from their own funders, uh, and from the sort of faddishness of politics so that they could be reflective in that way. And I think that the, what Jim is saying is absolutely right. Uh, and that think tanks need to adapt because maybe that business model doesn't work anymore. but I think we actually have to ask ourselves as people who are who are working in think tanks and supposedly value that business model of reflection and slowness, whether uh, it actually can persist in the world that Jim is describing in which we need to be so flexible and so
0: adaptable and so fast in order to get any attention. So Kaji,, I had quite a lot of experience of dealing with uh, populism in the, the countries that you kind of follow around the world, but also you've seen where well, you lived in the Soviet Union, you've lived in, in well various different European countries and have seen politics change and go for ebbs and flows. How much of, of what we experienced in 2017 do you think is genuinely new? How much of it is just some kind of spasms which are taking place um around Trump and around other things, but which might burn themselves out in in the next period of time,
3: yeah, in fact, I do question to what extent this is really new because um I mean things tend to go in circles and and certain things can go through lots of changes but still remain essentially the same thing. I remember i I studied diplomacy and and I was struck by the fact that some people actually have researched diplomacy in Stone Age. It existed. A tribe would send an envoy to a rival tribe and, and he would enjoy something called immunity. You know, it was totally different. No Vienna convention. I heard Donald no Trump stuff. was going to
2: hire that guy. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but, you know, what? my point is that diplomacy, for example, has changed so much, but essentially it's still recognizable from where it started. And I think it's the same with many things. Or you might think that technology change is huge, but, you know, 100 years from now, it we will see it as just another sort of phase in, in a chain of events. And likewise with Donald Trump, he uses technology, but you don't need technology in order to beat Donald Trump. I have seen Boris Yeltsin do exactly the same thing, sideline all establishment politicians by reaching out directly to people using populist message. And that was with no internet. So I, I think... Things are essentially the same, just, yeah, they blend slightly differently, but I... (laughs) I don't think it's sort of dramatic new era because of that.
0: But things might might be the same. But it's the job for lamp lighters and um, candle makers and uh, you know all of the people who help cast the buggy whip makers. Yeah, <laughs> I lost a fortune on that. <laughs> <laughs> Life's changed for them, hasn't it, Jim? Well, I mean, well, I mean, I would point I would point out that what has
1: changed. Is and this increased velocity of information and policy flows, And I would cite without going into the detail because time is short. but if you look at the life cycle of the phonographic record and how what you know, roughly sixty years, um, ellipsed by the audio cassette, ellipsed in a very short period of time uh, by CDs. And ellipse, finally, by uh, a, a, a more mobile, powerful, smaller technology in terms of
0: iPods. You missed out those little... What were those things called in the middle? They were like these... tapes. These disks. They were like... There was this brief
1: period. Yeah, little, very tiny. But, there, there's, <laughs> but my point is it's that so the short. life cycle is, of each one of those has gotten smaller, yeah. shorter and shorter. And that, I think, is instructive in terms of the impact on policy... Um, and any, any knowledge-based institution because it's going to affect what they do and how they communicate their ideas. And I would suggest that I'm not suggesting that um, the, na- the basic nature of policy analysis um, and the importance of advice is age old, uh, but what has changed is how to um, analyze and harness uh, and shorten the time in terms of the long uh, span and time that's required in the traditional sense of a think tank does have to shrink and technology can assist with that. And it can also assist in terms of the delivery uh, in a more effective way and to a broader audience, which was not previously possible because the the internet and technology has really decentralized and democratized uh, the process and uh, that, I think, is a new um, and both positive and dangerous uh, phenomenon that needs to be looked at. And think tanks can play a role in as a moderating um, force or uh, institution in terms of the policy debates.
0: But don't you think what we're seeing is more of a mixed economy that's coming out? That on the one hand, you've got the tweets... And their ability to shake things up, and to, but at the same time, you know, I, I um, recently bought a thousand-page history book, which apparently Angela Merkel spent several weeks reading when she broke her leg in a skiing accident. And there has been a kind of, uh, if, if you look at the internet as well, you go from uh, very, very trivial, facile things to a kind of explosion of podcasts, a bit like this one, where people will mm. sit around. <laughs> Hours on end, having abstruse discussions about we
2: are the future of
0: boredom. <laughs> <laughs> about things like the role of think tanks, which is quite a sort of um, uh, kind of geeky topic.
3: What I see is some sort of polarization. In fact, that uh, the more the landscape democratizes, the more actually there is also need for some sort of checked facts and edited content. Oh. And that's why people pay big money for things such as Financial Times subscription. Uh, and and then the um, the other newspapers who don't produce stuff of that quality they need to rely on yeah more democratic content less fact checking so forth so yeah. it's sort of sometimes I wonder if we get back to the middle ages when real knowledge was in monasteries and written up in Latin and not accessible to common people.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I think I think there are two dimensions. One is that um, that that's absolutely true. Um, and the lines across sectors are blurring. So the line and, and the traditional definition of what a think tank is, you know, m- increasingly Bloomberg and other um, organizations are providing content and analysis that would tr- be traditionally the domain of think tanks and many others are. And I would also point to the fact that um, The Economist now has uh, features uh, in order to drive Viewers to their uh, magazine, a Snapchat that they've instituted. These, I think, are the things I'm talking about. I'm not saying change what the quality and the analysis. I'm saying it may need to be done in a different way, and it may be it may need to be delivered uh, in different ways because people simply are not. Um, accessing information mm-hmm. and analysis in the way that they have historically.
3: But isn't it the case that, I mean, think tanks have always also been very different? I mean, if you ask what is a think tank, people would give you very different answers. And I, I know of think tanks that are basically, you know, research institutes trying to go deep and, and, and provide... jim sort of, guy you know,
0: typology. You've got how many different <laughs> ty- You had a yeah. brilliant typology. How many different types did you really, have? Like six
3: Different uh-huh.
1: types. I mean, you know, so there...
0: Do you want to give it to... Them? Well, I mean, I for, you
1: know, there's the traditional academic uh, think tank. There's, uh, you know, the advocacy think tank. There's the consulting think tank, which is RAND. Um, and so there... And the sort of um, political party think tank uh, or party-affiliated think tank. So there's a range of um, models that sort of explain the sort of differential or different type. Because in all of this, some... You know, would suggest that Human Rights Watch and Transparency International are not think tanks because they are they're more advocacy That's oriented, true. but they do collect uh, data uh, that has an impact on policy, and so they may be more in the advocacy mode, but they ser- and they certainly have a think tank dim- dimension. They're not just, you know, advocating, you know, information uh-huh. from other institutions, and there are groups that do that. So there's there's a range of institutions, and the lines within those are blurring and also in terms of across sectors are blurring. So I think that's a common phenomenon that I think directly affects think tanks that the lines of having a strict and and. A very rigid definition of what a think tank is is no longer a part of
0: the operational reality. But isn't part of the challenge also that all the world around think tanks is kind of changing as well? So, you know, we find as ECFR that there are governments that have, have cut the amount of money available to foreign ministries. So they will they don't have an embassy in Libya. Right, right. They don't have even have a desk officer in Libya in some countries. So they come to us and pay us to play the sort of role right. which which they would uh, have themselves played if they had people working yeah. on those sorts of things, but at the same time, uh, yeah, the media is also cutting. Increasing, news, yeah, so. I
1: mean, increasingly they're relying for content from think tanks because they're, you know, mm. they're downsizing dramatically. Certainly in the U.S., but I think across the
0: globe. And also, everyone now is a so. There's both other. Channels asking for people, but then also increasingly think tanks are kind of media as well. We have right. podcasts, Creating we have content. media, yeah, no, we have... So you become a sort of platform for...
1: No, I think, not- I, and, I, and that's precisely my point, is that those think tanks that understand that and are able to adapt and incorporate those elements and manage them effectively are the think tanks of the future. Because the funding model is changing the audience model is changing the reality is mm-hmm. that you know th- there are many now uh, more purveyors of information and analysis and you don't necessarily have to go to a think tank for that that's a reality that think tanks have to understand that that's a different environment and figure out ways of providing content in in a way that they have not done in the past
3: so. I don't know that's for me that's how I always have identified think tank <laughs> because I've, I've been thinking about it a lot we we sort of started first major think tank in Estonia uh, and um, I thought everyone knows what a think tank is and I only belatedly understood that this was something that needed to be explained and then I thought how to explain it and what I arrived to was exactly the same thing, But you know some, some think tanks are academic but that job could be done at universities some think tanks communicate with the public but that can also be done by with the media some give advice to foreign ministries but, but that can be done by policy planning departments and there are consultancies and stuff but what makes us unique is that we are in the middle of it. We are sort of some sort of glue between academia, politicians, and the media, and we help these different spheres to communicate with each other, and we, we are sort of catalyst of, of a process. But that, by definition, means that you need to permanently adjust. If discussion is too big, you provide some detail. If discussion is too detailed, you you provide big picture and, and, and so forth.
1: No, I, don't, I mean, I don't disagree with that. I mean, I think very clearly... And in terms of you know traveling around the world, the, the when I ask what is the um, area of greatest value added that think tanks provide, it is the convening function and more specifically both in the domestic context and in the international arena track 2. And I would suggest that in this period that we're in, track 2 will become very important role for think tanks since traditional means and certain governments and certainly the US will Uh, need to have other long-term building bridge building um, and connecting and convening and track two to sort of get a sense of what's going on and
2: what's possible now and in the future you know for me um, a defining characteristic of the think tank and I I take the point that in fact not everyone will share this definition um, and that there are it's quite contested is is independence Um, and and you know when when the the, when RAND was created right after World War II, it was created by the U.S. Air Force, but it was created on, on a recognition that they needed funding models which would preserve the independence of the institution. And what they realized is that if you didn't have that independence, the, or, the, the organization, the think tank, would become uh, useless because it would become a slave to their existing thinking, and they would, and it would, it would erode the innovation. Of the place. And so the nature of creating an organization which could both understand your problems and yet at the same time have enough independent of thought, not to be caught by your modes was the was the defining one for creating a think tank. It's what informed both Brookings and Rand. Um, and I think that that remains the central function that a think tank can provide. But that the funding model is very difficult these days because they, uh, because what, it requ- what independence requires is independence from your funders. And what, what has been demonstrated in recent years by Donald Trump, but not just by Donald Trump, is that uh, the, what the funders really want out of the think tanks, which is, which is political impact, you don't need the credibility and authority of an independent think tank anymore for. But, uh, but so why
0: would they fund it? But isn't that just a particular model of uh, of, of independence? Because they're like independence from lots of different things. You know, if you think about the most revolutionary leaders over the last sort of 30, 40, 50 years, a lot of them have uh, used think tanks not just to uh, build support and to, to float ideas outside, but also... To take a a kind of ideological position And a world view And make it into concrete policies Margaret Thatcher for example Is the sort of maybe the archetypal person And the think tanks that she valued Were not the the kind of uh, so-called independent ones that you're talking about, but it was think tanks that were independent from the blob of, uh, yeah, and those of think the civil tanks service that was trying to frustrate her and that wasn't listening to her. Well, sure, but those
2: think tanks are now gone. Um, and the reason that they're gone is because they can't really survive the, the initial instrument, instrumentalization that she created for them. And so they can be useful for a while for her specific purpose, but they're not really institutions that can... For a long time, inform the infrastructure of society and of thinking. And I think so. How would you categorize, or in terms of the independence factor, an
1: organization like Heritage that has uh, six hundred thousand individual supporters? Yeah, I think that individual. I mean, in terms of your model of financial independence, if you have, you can't get much more democratized than that.
2: If you have six hundred thousand individual I, I, supporters, yeah, I think that a membership organization is a is is you know, and the CFR has a similar model. Um,
1: but it's not a membership. They're provide. I mean, CFR and Heritage are different because people are making a contribution. Right. They're not becoming. I mean, they're, It's there's a formal membership with CFR.
2: There's not a formal membership with right, Heritage. Right. But what I mean is, you can you can have a you can have a sort of mass market model. Uh, which is frankly what the media has, if you think about it. It's Mm -hmm. it's roughly the same thing. Are people willing to pay to read it? And I think that 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 is a form of independence. But one of the insights um, of the original Think Tank founders... Especially Carnegie was that they needed that you also needed to have independence from the mass market. That there is a dependence that comes from the need for commercial success, Mm -hmm. which is what a six hundred thousand person model essentially is, Mm -hmm. which also suppresses innovation. And that's why they thought foundations, individual donors, and that kind of that kind of independent thing is very important. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, I I mean, I would I would I think that the way forward because the big golden donors that provided the general operating support for think tanks that allowed for independence because they were not chasing very, which has been the major change, project-specific funding, um, which has created, the, you know, impacts um, both independence and integrity, um, that new f- sources of funding, like crowdsourcing... Um, and others are ones that I think are the, the future of creating and sustaining independence. But many think tanks have not, don't have the staff or the technology to achieve that. Heritage does. I mean, it ha- yeah. it is, you know, it's Achilles heels is the marketing strategy that targets a specific market that they know is, you know, supportive of the policies that they're, you um, focused on and therefore they're in some respects trapped by that, which is a whole even though it's six hundred thousand it still, you know, has it has a limiting effect. So there's no perfect solution. But I think that you know, the one thing as I travel internationally, the one thing that's clear, though the institutions that have the most diversified base of support have a greater degree of independence than those who have a single source or, a, you know, a, a, a finite number of supporters.
0: So we talked a bit about the, the new world that we're in. We talked about the past and how we got here today. Maybe we could sort of um, end um, the Discussion by thinking, maybe each of you could give example of one or two really interesting, cutting-edge um, think tank. Uh, either activities or think tanks, which you think are go- which are going to be particularly adaptable, and which people will be maybe talking about in the future, in the mm-hmm. the way that you were talking about Rand and Carnegie uh, from from earlier eras. You're the biggest expert, Jim, so why don't so you I'll go give i I'll give
1: three quick examples. One is which I referenced in our meeting, the Ideas Lab at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Secondly, I would point
0: to globally, the... Fatili- you, sorry, because uh, for the podcast, there are thousands of people who weren't in our meeting earlier. Do you want to... F-
1: I mean, the basic th- I mean, I thought I was just giving examples that people could go to. But I mean, in terms of CSIS, um, it, they've created an ideas lab that looks at what are the... How do you de- develop content, quality content, and how do you deliver it in a new and innovative form that reaches larger audiences and at the same time policymakers and uh, stakeholders uh... the second example i would give would be the vitilio vargas foundation in brazil um, was able by utilizing big data in the last election able to know in every state and municipality throughout brazil what were the issues that the electorate was most concerned with and then um, finally a sort of powerful but possibly problematic example, is Al Jazeera um, has a think tank, uh, the Al Jazeera Research Center. They developed um, jointly, the content was developed by the Al Jazeera Research Center, delivered by Al Jazeera News Network, which is now moving from, which is an interesting thing in itself, from a traditional television network to a more digitized uh, web-based network. And in that in that example, they developed a program on Syria that had 1.3 billion viewers. And so when you're looking and and I when I told the story initially um, in in uh, to a group of think tanks, they all recoiled at, in disbelief. Them again, you're really you know create counter facts or you know. And I then went back. Uh, I actually had said 1.1 billion viewers. I went back and the actual number was 1.3 billion. And so that's the sort of thing I'm talking about. And in terms of demographics, and certainly in the Middle East, that is what needs to occur in terms of think tanks. In those three contexts, they're not changing anything that they're doing. They are essentially innovating and enhancing what they do for greater
0: reach and greater impact. Okay, Jeremy, what's your examples? Um,
2: well, I mean, I'll concentrate on what we do, um, since I guess it's uh, what I know best, and it's frankly what I'd like to talk about. Um, <laughs> uh, I think that one of the things that we've done to try to be innovative is to think about how we, because of our specific structure, and this is, the, this is a sort of this, the age-old quest for comparative advantage, right, is, is to think about how we can, we can add to debates in a way that no one else can. And so what we've done, because we have a pan-European structure, is create a network of 28 researchers across the different capitals of the EU, uh, and we've and what we do is we ask questions, we ask similar questions or the same questions to all of them, and assemble that information in a way that we can understand what both the what the domestic debates on a particular foreign policy question, say Brexit or uh, the Trump, the about to do one on the Trump administration. Uh, we can understand what the domestic debates on those are, and then we can understand how those sum up uh, to a European position or a European debate, because it it expresses, in the first instance, our view that European foreign policy arises out of the capitals of the European member states, but it also expresses our our belief that people aren't really equipped to understand understand uh, the totality of. Of uh, political debates on foreign policy because nobody has insight into all of the capitals and yet can put it all together. And so I think that that is a sort of model for think tanks is to think about what are what is the absence of knowledge and how can your structure with uh, the uniquenesses of your structure uh, add to it. Kadri, what's your example?
3: Yeah, I um. I actually find that, that sometimes sort of old fashioned going back to basics is very innovative. <laughs> because in my field, for example, since 2013-14, suddenly everyone has become expert on Ukraine and, and Russia, uh, and, and then publishing something by people who actually know what they are talking about, unlike all those who just talk. Uh, that's uh, not going to work. <laughs> um, but sometimes it, it does. Maybe not on huge crowds, but but there is still audience there who is sort of able to distinguish and, and make use of insightful stuff when they see it and recognize it when they see it. And likewise, with conferences convening, at one point it became very fashionable and very ubiquitous and everyone started doing it. And, you know, to me it sort of often looks imitational. They bring together some people who sort of say the right sort of things. I think there
0: is Gideon Rose who edits Foreign Affairs has this theory which I, I think is very credible to me which is that there is a single conference that travels around the world and just meets in slightly different formats wherever it goes and certainly I should spend more than my life than I should in that
3: <laughs> but that would be okay that would be okay but I would say that often it's imitation of a conference because yeah. people who gather don't really matter they are not the decision making it's just noise that they make so going sort of back to the original idea bring back people who make decisions and, and who reflect about issues and try to create some added value really as opposed to just having clamorous thing is is also quite, quite something
0: okay so there's one very last thing we need to do in this podcast which is the the bookshelf segment where we have to talk about um, uh, books which have kind of uh, changed the world way that we think about think tanks so we have to assume that at least half the bookshelf is filled with the collected oeuvre of Jim McGann and we'll put links to some of those books. Uh, Thank you very area.
1: much. <laughs> Not that it, these days makes any difference how many books you sell in terms of
0: but in the, in the empty half of the bookshelf, um, Jim, what but what is there a single book in your entire uh, study of think tanks that has made a big impact on you?
1: Uh, in, in terms uh, Well, I mean I think mo- uh, as I said um, and would reiterate, I think I find more interesting stuff in other sectors in terms of in how um, the, the transformations and adaptation that is taking place in other sectors uh, imp- impacts an industry. So, you know, I'm, I'm intrigued by the, the um, books surrounding the adaptation at Netflix, for instance, or um, Airbnb and now the much more. Is there a
0: particular one you want to mention?
1: Well um it's really about I mean it's mostly those by the the founders uh, or staff at those institutions that are that have documented the transformation of the ones that I would
0: point to okay yeah. Kadri
3: Well I I can't I think advertise a book Uh, at that moment either. I'm mostly busy reading um, what other parts of the world think about European security and Europe's Russia problem. That's for an upcoming ECFR essay collection, Hmm. Global Views on European Security. And I'm sort of trying to address this sort of western bubble we think about our problems and we assume they are everyone's problems whereas the world might see it very differently so i'm trying to understand what the world thinks and then reproduce some of it in an ecfr publication
2: jerry well i'm not reading any books about think tanks and i think that that would be almost masochistic to even do, to do that um no offense jim um, uh but i guess i've re- recently been reading i recently just read the um the young lord the, the Young Melbourne, which is this uh, by David Cecil, and it's the story of um, William Lamb, who was uh, the first, uh, first prime minister under Queen Victoria in 1837. Um, and it's the story of a guy who kind of wastes his life up till his late 40s, um, uh, going around to parties and having a difficult marriage with a woman who kept cheating on him with Lord Byron. Uh, and then eventually becomes a very uh, and sagacious um, advisor to Queen Victoria, and is is incredibly important for shaping the Victorian era because he's able to guide her in her uh, in her in the beginning stages of her. Uh, monarchy. So I don't know. Somehow I saw that as a model.
0: So uh, for me, I, as I said, we'll, we'll have uh, a long list of Jim McGann books, including his latest one, The Fifth Estate. But I'd also mention um, a book which intrigued me a lot uh, called Grand Hotel Abyss, The Lives of the Frankfurt School which is about uh, how in 1923 a group of young radical German thinkers and intellectuals came together at Victoria Ali Sieben in Frankfurt. And actually uh, had an enormous impact on the way that people think about politics, developed a whole series of different theories, but also what was wonderful about the Frankfurt School, particularly in its early days, was it, it was an attempt to bring a lot of the most cutting-edge thinking about psychology, about economics, mm. about cultural about culture, together under one roof, and uh, I think it's maybe a model for think tanks in the future as well if you've enjoyed this podcast you can go to our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast where we'll put up links to all the books that we mentioned and we hope that you'll also go to iTunes and give us a review and a ranking and let your friends know about it through Twitter Facebook on our Facebook page as well but uh for now from Jim McGann from Jeremy Shapiro from Kadri Leek and myself Mark Leonard it's goodbye the researcher of ECFR's podcast is Ulrike Franke and our editor is Bolin Goeming